0: When you even just look at this most recent incident, how it was handled. When the police officer got on television and said he was having a bad day. That is something that is all too common for black people. We know at the end of the day,
1: they're gonna find a way to justify this white terrorism. Hi, from the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a special guest co-host.
0: Hi, I'm Amber Crowder of the Bend Down Project, and you're listening to What's In It For Us.
1: Amber, I'm so excited to have you here today. For our listeners, Amber Crowder is a dear friend of Dr. Niambi Carter, who is a former guest host on the show. And today we are talking about three major topics. One, it's been a year of us in lockdown since COVID-19 started. Two, Deb Holland has been sworn in. And three, how are we going to combat Asian American violence and what kinds of conversations do we need to have about it? Amber, what say you?
0: So I was actually locked up during COVID when it first started, so I have an interesting aspect on that. Also, I think it's about time that Deb Holland or someone that's Native American, is over the Department of Interior. And lastly, I feel like there's something that we have to do because there's a longstanding history of Asian American violence.
1: Indeed. And as always, even though we are talking about Native Americans, Asian Americans, and how COVID has affected all Americans, at the crux of all of our conversations, we want to know... What is in it for us? Okay, so Amber, before we get into the serious topics, I want to talk about something that's been on my timeline. March Madness. I never spent Easter's growing up with my dad because he always went to the Final Four. He is a basketball fan, especially college ball. (laughs) He's real. And the thing is, he would always invite us to go. We would be like, no, we don't want to go. And then of course you get to that age where I'm dying to go. And he was like, no, you're not invited. (laughs) (laughs) You had your chance. You blew it. Now I'm going to go with my boy. So I'm fascinated by race, class, and gender in thinking about March Madness. Mm -hmm. And let's start with gender first. Okay. The NCAA women. I don't know if you saw the pictures. The locker room? Oh, my God.
0: Can we call it a locker room? Can we call it a weight? No, we cannot. It was a weight set. I definitely have more weight sets at my house than they do. It's crazy. Yes!
1: In my tiny apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> and so on Thursday, some images from a Stanford sports performance coach, Ali Kirchner, she posted this on social media, showing the drastic difference between what the men's teams in NCAA tournament had in Indiana and what the women's teams we're getting in Texas. And so this image shows for the men dumbbells, workout benches, weight racks, bars, plates, you name it. The whole gamut. Yes. It looked like the best Equinox you've ever seen, <laughs> or insert name of New York Sports Club or whatever sports club. Whereas the women's, in contrast, had six pairs of weights, some quasi sanitized yoga mats, and some labeling of the women's NCAA basketball branding. And so the NCAA eventually released this statement saying that the smaller women's gym was a result of limited space. Yet when you panned out, you saw that there was mad space like there are facilities that have it. I think it just speaks to the gender
0: inequality as a whole. Even if you look at the WNBA and the stark differences in the salaries based upon the NBA, it's ridiculous. This just also opened the NCAA up to much more criticism. They talked about the lunches that the women received versus the men receiving them. They talked about even the logo. The women's logo for the NCAA is kind of bootsy a little bit. Have you seen it? It looks real like robotic, you know, it's not, it doesn't flow like the men's. And I think it just overall lets us know like this is how we feel about women's sports. And especially since they came out with such a lame excuse talking about space and we could see that there was plenty of space. I mean, give us like a few more weight racks. Just that one was so ridiculous. It's comical that this is even happening.
1: So as always, let's continue to think about what's in it for us as we watch these basketball games in the COVID bubble. Okay, so Amber, now for our main topics. I want to start with we are currently at the one-year anniversary of COVID. So this time last year in March, COVID essentially came to the United States in full swath. Many people went on lockdown. March 9th was the day when CNN began to use the term pandemic to describe the outbreak. Sanjay Gupta said that the WHO and the CDC hadn't taken the step yet, but it was necessary to say. And so he's like, it's time to prepare. Then on March 10th, we started canceling things. So like conferences started being canceled and concerts were canceled. And it was like this low key slowdown that they started talking about. Then March 11th, it's like, um, the world's turning upside down. The New York Times, Dean Beckett, the New York Times editor, he told his newsroom that this is as big as, say, 9-11 when it comes to stories. So all of a sudden, the newspapers were shifting. And this is the conversation that we're having now around the world. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to shut down. Italy had shut down. And we saw the United States starting to shut down. Then March 13th rolls around. Companies start implementing work at home. I haven't been to work in my office. I've been working nonstop, but I haven't been in my office since March 6th. So events started canceling, Broadway shut down, and I was on an off-Broadway play on March 11th, but then the lights on Broadway went down two days later. The president at the time takes no responsibility. He's like, it's fine. So that's where I was. I was on an airplane on the 9th or the 10th and the 11th. I was traveling around, going to theater, still teaching, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm home. That's it. I've got toilet paper, thank God. All of a sudden, it's madness. You're looking at the pictures. People are buying paper towels and tissue and yeast to big bread. <laughs> Everyone was going crazy. It's like, we need to go to the bathroom and bake bread. That's all we need from the grocery store. Talk to us about where you were and the subsequent year of this closing and slow reopening. Because you're based in D.C. now. Yes. But where were you a year ago? A year ago, I
0: was in a federal prison in West Virginia. I was actually terrified because my release date from prison was March 25th. And I'm like, how is this going to affect me leaving? Because they have begun to shut everything down in the prison.
1: And what does that look like to shut everything down in a prison?
0: So we call it lockdown. And that means that we cannot leave our cells, our cubes. And it's terrifying. So it's like, I can't use the bathroom when I need to, because I wasn't in the kind of cell where there's like the toilet in there. Thank God, because I can't even imagine having to use the restroom in front of a bunch of people. But also we had stuff called like 10 minute movements. So we would have certain days where we could go shower. We're talking about women here. You understand what I mean? And we Mm -hmm. have certain Mm -hmm. things that occur to us monthly. Like we can't be restricted to showering and bathing. And even using the restroom, it becomes cruel. So people would have a bathroom emergencies and they would go use the restroom in the middle of the night. They would get in trouble. They were bringing us our meals to our actual units, to our cells. And all these rumors circulating, right? Because we couldn't go to the TV room to find out what was happening on the news. So everything is just hearsay.
1: And rumor mill. in
0: rumor mill. And if you can imagine what a rumor mill in prison is like, it is exactly what you can imagine a rumor mill in prison is like. So we're hearing all of these uh-huh. wild accusations and things like, you're not going to be able to go home. You're not going to do this. And everybody's dying. And we're just not knowing. And at that point, I believe West Virginia stated that they hadn't had any COVID cases just yet. I just feel like they just didn't know because there's just so many rural parts, um, West Virginia. But I was terrified. We didn't have hand sanitizer. We didn't have anything. And they're still letting a lot of the guards in and out. And they didn't really fully know yet how to test people. I actually went to prison for mail fraud because I responded to an email on my government account. I was sentenced to 13 months in federal prison. And that's what my project is about, the Bend Down Project, because I didn't steal any money. It was a nonviolent crime and they sent me to prison. My first offense, I went in. And you went in well before COVID. Well before In 2019, yes, the summer of 2019. And we're supposed to be Mm -hmm. released right before COVID began. Right before COVID began. And that just made me terrified that I would have to stay in prison any longer than necessary. Right. I'm freaking out. I want to get back to my son. I want to get back to my family. And they're telling me, but we don't know. So luckily I was able to go, I had to go to a halfway house. This was here in DC. And so they had implemented different COVID restrictions. So I was in a room that usually housed nine women and I was in a room by myself. And actually I only had to stay in the halfway house for about four days and I was able to go home. I was supposed to stay in there for about a month. Okay. COVID benefited me to be able to go home sooner than necessary than I would have, yes. In the halfway house, how many women would it have been? So it was still about 40-something women in the halfway house, but they just had them really spread out. Yeah. And since I was coming in from outside, I had to be quarantined by myself for a certain amount of days and they didn't really want me around people. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure there was a COVID outbreak even in prison because they almost make you get flu shots when you're in prison. And we had a large outbreak of something, but it wasn't the flu. Mm. And people were like passing out and people were having to go to the hospital. I think it was
1: covid But I can't prove that theory. And so you left March 25th. Yes. So that would put you in still incarcerated for the solid two plus weeks when everything popped off in the United States. Yes. And I'm sure West Virginia is not known to be one of the states that's usually at the forefront (laughs) of anything.
0: No, of anything. Of having prisons, but.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And Cole is our last president. So, of course, I know our listeners are probably curious, what was the email? As much as you can share about said email.
0: I can say that it was considered fraud because I responded to an email from someone that did
1: not exist. Gotcha. Okay. And (laughs) that's just what that is. So moving from COVID Mm -hmm. and the disaster that that was, but in some interesting ways, having a slight benefit for you, not having to stay (laughs) halfway house for a full Mm -hmm. month and being back in society with your family and friends. Mm -hmm. Then we spend a whole summer figuring out what lockdown looks like and trying to integrate ourselves and be with our families. And then we have this election. Joe Biden wins oh. by a margin that I wished were a little larger. It would make me sleep better at night knowing that 75 million Americans didn't vote for a total maniac from a different party. Maniac. But here we are. But Joe Biden said that he was going to have a diverse cabinet doing what the Canadians and some other countries have actively tried to do, which is make the cabinet look more reflective of the actual nation. Mm-hmm. You know, Justin Trudeau famously has 50% female cabinet. And these are just conscious decisions that you have to make if you want to have some sort of equity and parity. And so Joe Biden decides to nominate and successfully nominate Deb Haaland, who's been sworn as Secretary of the Interior. And so she's the first Native American leading a cabinet-level agency in the history of this nation. And I wanted to bring this up on a podcast where we talk about Black people all the time. Mm -hmm. And this is a podcast for and by Black people. But I oftentimes think about the struggles of Native peoples in this country. One, because they're the Native peoples of this land. Mm -hmm. And two, because so many Black people are integrated into this culture. Seen and unseen. You know, we know that there's some stuff going on in Florida with Seminole Nation Mm -hmm. and tensions between formerly enslaved African descendants and members of the Seminole Nation. Sort of what does it mean to be Black and Native at the Mm -hmm. same time? We see this with tribes all across the country, some larger than others. But the fact that she's been sworn in, she'll oversee the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is Amazing to me that this is
0: the first time that a Native American is going to oversee the Bureau of Native Affairs.
1: Yeah. It's almost as crazy as what? This is the first time that the UNCF has their first Black board chair? I know. Like in the history of <laughs> it. like crazy. The fact that we're still having these historic firsts in 2021 is mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling. I think it's also interesting when you look at the vote. The vote was 51 to 40. Right. With only four Republicans joining Democrats in favor And I think that that just says quite a bit. And we know that there are six members in Congress, some of whom are Republican. These are Native American members. It's not as though all Native Americans are Democrats. There's a pretty significant balance. But the fact that only four Republicans could bring themselves to vote for a woman who has a background, a knowledge. I mean, Deb holland she's part of the Laguna Pueblo nation. She'll have a staff of 70,000 employees. She'll oversee the country's natural resources. So I'm thinking about the Keystone Pipeline, all these protests that Black activists join with other groups to build coalitions Mm -hmm. to protect our nation, our lands, our water, our air, because it seems as though capitalists just don't seem to care. And she'll be in charge of nearly 500 million acres of land or one-fifth of the surface area of the United States. The fact that Black people oftentimes lead the environmental justice movement. To me, this is a huge win, not just for Native people, but for Black folks who care about these issues exactly. who consistently stood shoulder to shoulder with mm. Native folks.
0: And I think it just also speaks like I was watching when they were questioning her and different things. And she just really spoke about her love and just Native Americans' love of the land. And he can mm. they referred to America as our mother. And this is a country that has committed so many atrocities against them, but they still love America. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so to me, that just speaks so much as to the type of woman that she is, the type of job that she's going to do, because she just has this innate love of our country, of
1: our natural resources, of the land. But isn't that Black people too? I feel Mm -hmm. like we are some of the largest patriots. We worked this land. We built it. We've had various back to Africa movements, you know, their Facebook groups popping up. And Mm -hmm. you remember there was Blacksit during Brexit. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) The Black is like, we leaving. But where? And also there's this assumption that other people want us. Right. (laughs) Let's be clear. The rumors and the stereotypes have traveled far and wide well before folks get to the United States. Mm -hmm. And also when we go to their various countries and assumptions that are made about who we are and are not. But I do think that this idea of as so many of us are 15, 20th generation descendants, Mm -hmm. where do we go? Do we double down and invest in this nation or do we abandon ship and just realize, you know what, forget it? Which brings me to our last point, which I really want to talk to you about because as much as Black folks, I wrote about this in my book, Black Ethnics, are sort of seen as the last on the totem pole and immigrants to the United States, Black immigrants and non-Black immigrants get that memo really quickly. Okay, well, as long as I don't end up last with them, I'm good. And so it's created some tensions of us with other racial and ethnic groups because people have chosen the side of white supremacy or they've chosen the side of anti-Blackness mm-hmm. just as a protection mechanism for themselves. Right. So when things happen to those particular groups, Black folks are like, oh, okay, so now you want us to march in the streets for you? Now you want us to stick up for you? Because where have you been? You were more than fine when this was happening to us, but now I'm supposed to, you know, clutch my pearls and march. I'll do it. I've been doing it. But let's also be clear, I'm looking at you sideways. So we have this new rise of anti, it's not even new. Anti-Asian violence has been going on in this country since the the inception of Chinese Exclusion Acts of the 1800s, the 1920s, Japanese internment camps, Korean War, Vietnam War, this idea that Asian Americans, and we talk about this a lot in political science literature, forever foreigner. So even though Mm -hmm. there are many Asian Americans in this country, especially on the West Coast and in parts of New York City, they're 10th generation too. But it's like, oh, where are you from? And it's like, (laughs) Queens? It's like, no, where are you from from? It's like, Hugh Gardens? Right. (laughs) I don't know how much more specific you need me to get. I'm from New York, New York. So what are you making of this moment? And do you see a possibility of substantive coalition building happening between Black communities and AAPI, which is the Asian American Pacific Islander communities, as we see this anti-Asian violence really ramp up, largely because the president, at the beginning of COVID, kept using racial slurs to refer to the COVID-19. The China virus. Yeah, he's so inappropriate. And not even on the low. No, there was zero discretion. He's saying this on Twitter and in whenever he decides to talk to the press. Conferences, yes. Just in front of Asian Americans and Americans. Like, I'm offended by this. Mm -hmm. I'm offended by anybody who was saying that And he thought it was fine. And so then journalists started using it from right-wing media. Because it's like, well, if the president says it, then it's okay. If the president says it, then it can't be a racist slur, which it totally was. But do you feel like we're in a moment with, say, Black Lives Matter and now what's going on with the spike of anti-Asian American sentiment where there could be substantive coalition building? Do you think it matters that Kamala Harris is of Asian descent? And as the vice president, she's a Black woman. And also she talks very clearly about the significance of her mother and her South Asian heritage. I feel like there is a possibility. Well, one, because when you even
0: just look at this most recent incident, how it was handled when the police officer got on television and said he was having a bad day. That is something that is all too common for Black people. We know at the end of the day, they're going to find a way to justify this white terrorism. Mm-hmm. OK, the fact that they chased him, he had a high speed chase. Right. So they did not shoot him or kill him. And so these are all of the things that we can definitely empathize with that. Do You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I think some of the issues is like, I don't know how some Asians still feel a certain type of way about black people, too. And I think that that is something that we are going to have to get over in order to
1: really come together. Well, Amber, I so appreciate you coming and sharing your thoughts with us today. And as always, listeners will continue to think about what is in it for us. And so, Amber, I want to know what's next for you. So what's next for me is just I'm
0: continuing to share my story about being incarcerated because I feel that America is obsessed with incarceration. It is their number one go-to. And then I also kind of want to change inhumanize what it means to be formally incarcerated. I feel like there's such a stigma attached to going to prison and to people that were formerly incarcerated and just changing the stigma, how that looks, and just creating my own narrative around that and just helping people in my
1: same shoes. And can you tell us a little bit more about the Bend Down Project and where listeners can find out more about it? Sure. The Bend Down Project is me, my personal story
0: of incarceration. And I do it in a lighthearted way so that it makes it more palatable because nobody just wants to hear about downtrodden prison. I have The Bend Down Project on Instagram. I have the thebendownproject.com. And I also have The Bend Down Project on Twitter as well, so.
1: Well, I can't wait to see where you go with this. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I so appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Kevin Wyatt Brown and produced by Abdul Kudus.